We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. Matthew 21, this is when Jesus and his disciples are coming into Jerusalem. And it says this, when they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her foal. That means like a colt, like a baby donkey. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and its foal. Then they laid their clothes on them and he sat on them. He is Jesus. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted this, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, which means Lord save us. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar saying, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is God's word. Father, we ask that you would help us to focus on you this morning. God, that we would hear and see from your word. God, that we would receive it in our hearts and our minds. That it would change us. That it wouldn't just be information downloaded, but words of life that would bring us more and more into the fullness of life that you offer to us through the work of Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, to the glory of the Father. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Do any of you guys have like guilty pleasure TV shows you watch? I can, like if you do, those of you who would raise your hand, I'm gonna guess that it's a reality show. Those are usually the guilty pleasures, right? I hate reality shows. They're not even like real. They're not reality. But every now and then, one will suck me in. And so our kids came back from time with, uh, with their aunt, and they're like, hey, we got to watch this show called Special Forces together. Has anyone ever seen that? So Special Forces, we started watching it as a family and like binge watched it. It was terrible. Uh, but we just finally finished it. And so what it is, is it's these uh, guys who are like, they train people in, in Special Forces, military ops, right? Like Navy SEAL type of stuff. And so they started this program where they will take people through a 10-day, is it 10-day, Bethany? A 10-day course that like is basically boot camp for Special Forces and see if you can hack it. And so this reality show is a bunch of like C-level celebrities, you know, like not on the A-list necessarily, but a bunch of people, you would know some of their names and, and they're coming in to do this for 10 days and to see if they can hack it. And it's pretty funny because you got like some people on there who like, they've done a reality show before. That's the only like reason they're on the show, but they have no like, no athleticism, no military background, none of that. And like 
first day, they're just dying. They're like, I'm done, I'm tapping out. And so the whole point of it is to see who can make it through the 10 days and who doesn't tap out. And like, they have all these different like tests that they got to do, physical tests and mental tests. And you can pass or you can fail. And what they tell you, watcher of the show, not people in it, is like, it's, it's not about pass or fail. Like you can pass, you can fail, that doesn't matter. They want to see how much you're going to get back up and keep going through it, right? And so when people keep hearing you fail over and over and over again, they're just like, I'm done, I'm out. Uh, and so what's surprising about this is who makes it to the end. There's NFL, like Super Bowl champions on the show. There's NBA all-stars on the show. There's like Olympic gold medalists, multiple ones on the show. And at the very end, two women complete the whole test. One of them is an Olympic medalist through soccer. And the other one is this lady named Hannah Brown, who's a 24-year-old former Miss Alabama and the bachelorette. And she blows everybody away. She's a tiny little thing, and she blows everyone away. The whole time we're watching, and I'm like, I can't believe I'm rooting for The Bachelorette. I never saw that show. I don't think I would like that show at all. I think the whole premise of that show is ridiculous. Sorry, I'm going to get off that soapbox for a second. But now I'm like, I want her to win this thing. Like, she's amazing, right? She's totally shocking everybody. And what she starts to talk about in the show is like her whole life, she was told she was one thing. She was told she was pretty. And so she had one avenue to make it in life. Do pageants, right? Compete in those. Like she became Miss Alabama. What's the next step? What do you do with that? Well, you get on The Bachelor. That's what you do. And you make it in the top seven. And then you get your own show, The Bachelorette. And so that's her whole life. She's been told, this is what you're good at. And what she's saying through this show is like, I'm learning so much more about myself. She showed a physical toughness for sure, but she wasn't physically the toughest. What she also really showed was a mental toughness. And even more than that, she's really, really intelligent. She was understanding and figuring things out when everybody else was like clueless and all like mixed up in their head. And she's like, oh, I see what they're doing here. And she's like a strategist, man. And she, in this process, was becoming a more full person, a more whole human being. Not just one thing about her, not just her physical looks, but also her intelligence, her emotional attitude, her physical strength she didn't know that she had, more of a whole person. And I, this resonates so much with me. Like I could relate to Hannah Brown on so many levels. I also won a pageantry once. I'm just kidding. I, didn't. I was never Miss Alabama. Uh, so I can't relate on a lot of things with her. But on that, on the idea of like, hey, this is who you are. This is what you are. And it becomes very narrow and it becomes very limited, right? And I don't know if anybody else in here can relate to that where like you kind of compartmentalize your own self into a box and say, this is, I guess, what I stick to right here, right? This is what I'll ever be good at. Don't, don't ever step outside of that. And so we, we kind of limit ourselves. We stick to a lane. And what we do in that process a lot of times is we kind of cut off parts of who we are and, and we don't become a whole person, right? It's like cutting off these limbs and you're like, no, it's just right here. 
And the reason I'm sharing all this is I think what we see in the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is a picture of the wholeness of humanity. A picture of what it looks like to be fully human. And that's not something that necessarily jumps right off the page, right at first glance. But all throughout Scripture, throughout Old Testament, New Testament, one of the ways it talks about of being fully human is through three different roles, three different kind of offices that you would fill of prophet, priest, and king. And the reason I think this all throughout Scripture is actually showing us not just a role that people played throughout history, but actually what it looks like to be fully human is because if you go all the way back to the beginning of the story, in the garden, in creation, it's exactly what the first two humans were called to be. All three of those things, prophet, priest, and king. And let me explain that. A prophet, when you think of prophet, what do you usually think of? What was it? Speaking for God to people? That's good, yeah. That's a good definition, yeah. Yeah, someone who hears the word of the Lord and then speaks it to others, right? A priest is someone who uh, kind of mediates on behalf of others. Uh, they, they also would have been in the Old Testament in charge of caring for the temple, looking after it, watching over it, and then also making sure that things that were entering in or coming near were being cleansed first, okay? And then a king, well, I think that one we kind of know a little bit more about, uh, even though we're in the US of A here. We don't practice a monarchy. We understand what that looks like. But, but for Old Testament people, a king would have not just been one who sits on the throne and has authority over, but one who also goes to battle for their people. They would have been a warrior too. Kind of like the judges, if you know the book of Judges, before they installed a king. They would go to battle also, like a general. And so you have these three roles. And what God says to the first man and the first woman is not only I give you authority and dominion over all of this, what I created, kingship, right? Like be my kingdom representatives. And as you rule and reign over the animals and the birds and the fish and the garden itself and the sea, you show what I'm like as the good king. So they're set up as, as this kingly authority, but also they were to watch over, tend to, care for, and prune back and cleanse the garden. And what we see once the temple gets built later on in the story, uh, when Israel is tasked with building a temple for God's presence to reside in, for the priests to watch over, all of it is drawing garden imagery. Every little detail he gives them of how it's supposed to look, what's supposed to be in there, and how they shape it, is pulling them back to what the garden looked like. And so Adam and Eve were these first priests over God's temple of the Garden of Eden looking after it, caring for it, cleansing it. That's what that word prune actually means, is to cleanse. And then prophet. And I think a, a quick one we can go to with that is Adam first is given instruction of which tree he's not to eat from, right? Like you can eat from anything in this beauty, beautiful garden, but don't eat from this one tree. If you do, you will die. And then we're told that Eve is made. And so we could infer in that, okay, Adam had this first role of like, hear the word of God and then speak it to other people. There's a, a prophetic role, right? But even more than that, I think for both of them, what we see, because also throughout the Old Testament, we see women who fill this role of being a prophet. 
we see that both of them were walking and talking with God in the day, and they would have God speak to them. And as they were his image bearers, the way that they interacted with the world around them and with creation around them, they were being a display of what God's word is to the rest of creation. They both filled this role of prophet to all of creation. Now, when you see Jesus ride in on a donkey, of all things, which we'll talk about in a moment, into Jerusalem, we see all three of these roles on display. And so let's just kind of look through that again real quick here. First of all, we have the word prophet given right to us. And so at the end of what we read in verse 11, who is this, people are saying. In that time, uh, you, they were making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for a specific reason. Jesus was going there for his specific reason, but all of his disciples thought, oh, we're going here because this is the Passover festival. The, the Jewish people who were scattered in other places, once a year they would make that pilgrimage to go and celebrate the Passover festival together. But what you would do, there's instructions. You would walk in those who are able to walk. If you weren't able to walk, you didn't have to go. Jesus is the only person not walking in. He's riding on a donkey and he's causing a scene intentionally. This is the Jesus who often would like kind of just be very comfortable being in the background, right? People would ask him questions. He'd be like, Hey, it's not my time, right? Or they would, they would ask questions like, oh, I'm not going to answer that. Let me ask you a question instead. And, and he would slip away from the crowds. And in this moment, Jesus is intentionally drawing a crowd. And so everyone's like, who is this person? In a sense, like, who does he think he is? And they say, in that moment, the crowds were saying, this is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth and Galilee. And Jesus certainly was a prophet. If we were to say Jesus is just a prophet, we would be missing something. But Jesus is a prophet. If prophets were supposed to hear the word of God and speak it to others, Jesus is the very word of God in the flesh who came preaching the good news, right? And he came speaking to people what God was saying. And so we see in this text even, it's very clearly drawing out on purpose, I think intentionally, Jesus is the prophet from God. But not only that, we see that Jesus is coming in on an animal. Now, this kind of procession would have been something that kings do. Kings would have rolled into town after victory in a battle on a horse. Or they could have been rolling into a town that they were about to do battle with on a horse. If you ever saw a king riding in on a donkey, because it did happen, it was because what they were saying is, I'm not coming to do battle, but I'm still the king. I'm coming in peace. I'm coming in a way to bring peace here, right? We're, we're going to have a treaty. We're going to form an alliance, whatever it might be. And so Jesus is riding in to this town, Jerusalem, in the same way that a king would have been riding into town, except... All of his followers were expecting that Jesus was going there to do battle against Rome. And even in that picture of him riding on a donkey, they still miss it. He wasn't going to do battle with Rome. He was coming to do battle, though. But he was coming to do battle against sin and death itself. And the way he would do that battle is not through violence on his part, but through actually giving himself over to it. He was coming in peace. This king rode in on a donkey. 
the palm branches they would have been spreading out was another symbol of peace. And so for them, it sounds like the way you read that, like, oh, we're just like, we're making sure the road's clean because the roads are dirty in this time, right? And so we're making sure the road's clean as his donkey's trotting through. We don't want dust kicking up everywhere and getting Jesus's robe dirty. He's our king, right? And so they're laying down their clothes. And then it says some people were cutting palm branches, right? Like they're probably just like, hey, we need something. But what they don't realize they're doing is palm branches were a symbol of peace. And still, again, they miss that peaceful king coming into town. But Jesus is also their priest. And so Jesus, riding in, came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. What's interesting about this is there would have been uh, a few people who would have been anointed with oil in the church or in the, sorry, in God's people in the Old Testament, Israel. And it would have been prophets, priests, or kings. Those three roles would get anointed with oil. And what they were doing is they were, they were taking compressed liquid squeezed out from things like olives. And it was a symbol of life. It would flow over as they poured it on their head like water. And water is a symbol for life. But there's something also unique about this liquid. It's got more nutrients and it's full of flavor. And it, it, for them, it symbolized this is the fullness of life flowing down and that's how they would anoint somebody. And so Jesus, as he's riding in, he's, by the way, been anointed before. He's been anointed through uh, the tears of who the people thought was a sinful woman. He's been anointed with perfume bottles that they broke over him. Like Jesus has had his anointing as prophet, priest, and king. Uh, But it's interesting that they give us this little detail here. Bethphage, which is house of figs, at the Mount of Olives, two things that they would have gotten their oil from, right? Uh, and what a priest would do, the priest would be the one who would actually administer the anointing. He would be the one who would pour the oil on a head for somebody. And that word anointing just simply means this. It means you are called by God for a work. That's what that means. The spirit of God is on you for a specific role, and purpose. And so we saw earlier through Lent that Samuel went and anointed David because he was being called into this role of king. And so when we actually hear that Jesus is the anointed one, we hear words like Christ or Messiah. That word Christ is the Greek version of the word Messiah, which is the Jewish word that literally just means anointed one. And so Jesus, our anointed one, is coming in and he's actually now about to give an anointing to his people. They don't even know it yet. Jesus, as a priest, priests, uh, they had to make sure, remember, things were clean as they came near the temple. Jesus would go and he would touch people who were considered unclean. And instead of their uncleanness getting onto him, his cleanness, his holiness, his righteousness would spread to them instead. And so he could touch people with skin diseases. He could touch people who had bodily fluids coming out of them. He could touch people who were dead. And in that culture, if you touched a dead body, you were unclean for a certain number of days and you had to go make sure you followed all these steps to be clean again before you could enter the temple. But Jesus can touch them right away and instead of him becoming unclean, they not only became clean, but they became alive. So Jesus is the priest and the prophet and the king who does all this and thank God. Because if you've been tracking with us through Lent, 
you may have picked up that we've been introduced to all three of these roles before. We've been introduced to prophets like Ezekiel last week, right? We've been introduced to priests. Ezekiel actually was in the priesthood. His family, he was in that line of priesthood, but because he was away from the temple, he had to operate as a prophet. God called him to something else. Uh, But we also saw Aaron in the wilderness, right? Working alongside Moses. Moses working as a prophet, Aaron working as a priest. We also have seen kings like David, David who was anointed. And what happened is all these roles were filled by different people. You could not be a priest and a king. You could not be a prophet and a king. Like these things didn't overlap. And there's a very specific reason for that. Because at some point, somebody told humans a lie about who they were. And we believed that lie. And what we did is we cut off aspects of who we are as humans and became this one thing, right? And actually the thing we became was dead. But what God does is he starts to restore the image. And he does it First, the first step is by giving a specific role to specific people. But I believe what Jesus is doing as he rides in right here is to show now this fullness of life is actually being restored to all people. So the first two humans were called to be all three, prophet, priest, king, but they failed at every single one of them, didn't they? They failed at keeping the garden clean, at keeping it holy and pure when they allowed the lie of the serpent to come in and they listened to it. And then things started growing from the ground through thorns and thistles. They failed in their prophetic word, if we just take Adam's role to start with, if his prophetic word was to teach the woman what the Lord had said, he didn't do a very good job. And there's actually been a lot of debate over this, right? I'm like, well, maybe the woman just misunderstood and it's not the man's fault. Guess what, guys? He's standing right there with her when the serpent creeps up and is like, "Eh, did God really say this? And he hears her quote it wrong and he says nothing. As a prophet, his job was to speak up and he doesn't. And not only that, but they listen to, both of them listen to the words of the serpent over the words of the creator. Their prophetic voice was mute. And as kings, as king and queen, as rulers over the world, who are supposed to have dominion and authority over the creatures, they let the creature's voice, a serpent, and his word usurp their power and authority. Suddenly what he says holds more weight than what they say and what God has said. And they give over their kingly authority in that moment. And so because of that, because they relinquish their role of being prophet, priest, and king, all these things God called us to as humans, the very fabric and nature of what it means to be a human begins to get dismantled. Now listen, you probably don't think about this in terms of prophet, priest, and king, but you feel, I know you do because I am also a human, you feel not whole. You feel fractured. You feel like something is missing. You feel like something's just not right in what God has created and called for you to be. Don't you? And what that set into motion was that every single human ever from that point forward 
would wrestle with that reality. And we would keep listening to these lies. The way our reality star listened to the lies that this is what you're good at. You're, you're just pretty, that's it, right? But we, we listen to much deeper lies about who we are. And God has created us to step into a glorious role of filling all three of these, a prophet, priest, and king, that we get to hear the word of God from God himself, and we get to speak it to the world around us, that we get to mediate for people and bring them closer to God, and we get to watch over and care for. Speaking. It's a prophetic bark right there. That we also have dominion and authority over the broken world around us, and even as God restores it one day, and we're fully restored into our role, that we will continue. That doesn't go away. We don't just float on clouds and play harps all day, you guys. We get restored into our role that was originally there to have dominion and authority over God's good created universe. So when Jesus rides in this way, I believe he's making a statement. Yes, he's coming to do battle, but not against Rome. He's coming to do battle against the lies humans have believed. He's coming to do battle against the rebellion that has broken and fractured the very fabric of who we are. And he is coming to ultimately mediate for us in the best way to restore us into our role as humans. A couple verses I just want to share real quick, if we can throw those up here, of where we see Jesus being the fulfillment of prophet, priest, king. In Acts 3, and this is quoting from Deuteronomy 18, it says this, they're speaking of Jesus. They're giving this, Peter's speaking, and he's giving a sermon, basically, about Jesus. And he says, hey, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to everything he tells you, and everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. And he's speaking to them of Jesus. Jesus is the truer and better prophet who has come. And when we listen to him speak, we find words of life. But when we shut him off and we don't listen, then we too get cut off, not whole. The next one, Hebrews 4, writes this after Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. and says this, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Okay, he's not just there at the temple courts all day long living it up. And if you remember all throughout the story, we see that that the sons of Samuel were wicked prophets, uh, but we also see the sons of, um, I can't think of his name right now, Elisha. The sons of Elijah were wicked priests. And so they were, they were just trying to live fat off of the stuff that was brought into the temple and judge everybody else. And he says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses because Jesus entered into all of them, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And then one more. Oh, there's more to that. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And then one more verse I want to share. 2 Samuel 7. So we, we read from 1 Samuel when David was anointed as king. This is a word David gets later from the Lord. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, that means when you're dead, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
He goes on to say, I will be his father, he will be my son. Now he is talking about David's descendant Solomon and his sons after, but also, again, like we talked about last week, there's a double prophecy. Because he says, I will establish the kingdom forever, and Solomon didn't live forever. And the whole line of David eventually failed at their role of kingship. But Jesus rides in now as the true king. This is why he's called the son of David often. And the fact that he rides in in humility and peace is really what changes everything. Because what was the number one reason the first two humans failed and they gave up their role as prophet, priest, king? It was through pride. Hey, if you reach out and take this thing that's not for you, that God said is not for you, if you reach out and you grab it, you don't need God. You can decide what's right and not right for yourself. You can be your own ruler, your own authority. You don't need the words of God. You can speak your own words. Be your own prophet. You don't need to mediate for God and bring people to him. You decide what's clean and what's good for yourself. Be your own priest. You don't need God as your king and you're just his representative king. You be king over all things. That pride is what tore us apart. And Jesus rides in who truly is the king over the universe, who truly has dominion and authority over all things. And he rides in in humility. And he's stripped naked in humility. And he's beaten and mocked in humility. And he goes in humility to the grave before he's exalted fully as a king should be in his resurrection. One more verse I threw up there I'll share with you and then we'll close this out. In Zechariah 9.9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. And listen, this is, this is getting us ready and they still didn't see it when it happened. And so I'm praying we see it now. He is righteous and victorious. He's, he is coming to do battle. Humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He is both coming to do battle and yet he's coming in peace and humbleness because the battle is not against us. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. He came into the world to save the world, as we're told in John. He has not come to do battle against you. He has come to do battle against the thing that has fractured you because he wants you to be whole again. And he wants to welcome you back into his kingdom and to take on your role of prophet, priest, king. Jesus is the only one who could fully restore that for us. And that happens, which we'll see next week, fully at his resurrection, when he finishes his battle and he overcomes as king. Let's pray.